Thanks for tuning in to another episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We've dialed up a really fun episode for you. We are going to talk hardcore pheasant hunting, bird hunting, and we've got a collection of folks representing the spectrum of bird dog breeds this uh, this episode for you. We have my, uh, my, my trusty sidekick, to put it in bird dog terms, <laughs> Anthony Hauk, representing yeah, the... Uh, the hardcore The, the English cocker uh, hardcore contingent. <laughs> Got to think of a new word other than hardcore. I'm kind of getting tired of that word, hardcore. <laughs> Does it have a negative connotation to you? No, it really doesn't. It's just got to throw some new words into the spin cycle you know like how about avid well that's what that's the word i was going to bring up like i felt like that one got overused like avid hunter is mm. the only descriptive word now it's hardcore hunter it's like what's next dedicated i'd call passionate it, i'd call them in, intense that's one word i have <laughs> for anthony's dogs they're Same. intense hunters in, re, in the voice you hear uh representing the Brittany and epignol breton contingent uh Mr. Tom Carpenter, editor of the Pheasants Forever Journal. Welcome. Thank you. Thank so if you ca- uh, call Anthony intense, what do you call yourself? As myself or my yeah. dog? Well, just uh, you're, you're, you and your dog's approach to pheasant hunting. If, if we can't be hardcore, <laughs> we can't be avid. Uh, if Anthony and his cockers are intense... I'd say we're cruisers. We just, we just <laughs> cruise. Nice. Po- yep. Point of c- clarification. Like, you can be that. Yes. Like, I am that. <laughs> I just want a, a different word to describe it. Like, a different... It's a, I'm looking for that synonym. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to noodle on it during the course here. Maybe, maybe our, uh, our, our final uh, guest today has a different word we have to even come up with an i have to try to pronounce another language yeah, to more. introduce rachel hovland the uh deutsch drothar how'd i do good pretty good i went from uh, pretty good i went from french to german <laughs> um so I, 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 rachel represents um like i said the deutsch drothar welcome to your first thanks I'm on the way podcast and uh the theme for today uh, it comes right off the pages of the winter edition of the Pheasants Forever Journal, and that is Rooster. Roo- I'm sorry, I already screwed it up. It's Ringneck Ruses, written by Tom Carpenter. Six tricks roosters use to evade us and our bird dogs, and Tom Carpenter's six ways to trick them. Well, maybe you're maybe you're not just going to read the article and this turn this into a book on tape, are you? No, <laughs> I've, what I've Archive. I've named all six of these birds, and I'm basically going to name them, and then we're going to talk about them. You know, they I've given them all names, and um, I, I'm going to read one part of the article because you know I'm a writer, not a talker at heart. Maybe I talk okay on the pro- podcast, but I said for a fellow with a body the size of a barrel-chested football covered in resp- splendidly colored feathers that include a beacon-like white necklace, flashy red goggles, iridescent blue-green violet head, bejeweled powder blue to lime green rump patch, edged in orange, and elegantly barred tail feathers, often longer than the rest of him. A ring-necked pheasant rooster is exceedingly adept at evading, avoiding, and eluding both hunter and dog alike. That, that paragraph brought to you by Audible. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the only thing I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just That's the only thing I'm going to read out of the article. You might have a, a budding second career. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the funny thing, so we didn't game plan this, but you can see my notes right in front. I highlighted that exact same paragraph because I thought you um, really eloquently dis- um, described how colorful and gaudy pheasants are. But it's sure a lot um, tougher to get them into the air or pointed by a bird dog than than we'd all wish, especially when they when they pull these six tricks on us. And there's a lot more. There's many more tricks, and we'll probably explore some of those too. But I think as as we go through this, and as listeners listen and hear them, they'll see birds that they've been that they've been acquainted with in this list, and they'll probably think of more too. Um, so there, there, I, we probably could have done a dozen, but space let us do only six. So I picked out six and, uh, with this, uh, pheasant hunting, with this hardcore pheasant hunting crew we've got on the <laughs> podcast today, we're, we're going to talk it through and, and just change it up a little for the podcast and just do hunting. So we're talking hunting today. So basically like the six types of birds you'd encounter yep six and six types of birds you'd encounter and and maybe six of the more difficult ones that you're going to encounter whether it's early season mid-season especially late season i mean these birds the more they get hunted and uh we're all in this room uh and many listeners public land hunters uh there's birds out there we all know it but they get pushed they get worked they see all kinds of dog work from hardcore cockers to Deutsch Dratars to cruising uh, French Britneys up in Yolbre Tons. And they, they have these little tricks, and that's what they use to beat us. And sometimes we beat ourselves, too. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Some of these relate to what we do wrong as hunters and not necessarily the birds are just being themselves. It's sometimes it's what we do and don't do that matters i call them unforced errors <laughs> i never really played tennis but that's like the one thing i remember from it i thought that was a baseball term that's it shows you what i know <laughs> well you, you did bring up uh early season mid-season late season um my 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 assumption at least in perspective is that um as birds get educated these Ringneck ruses, as you coined the term, um, become more and more prevalent. You know, you, you know, when you head out opening day, they haven't read all the book, the playbooks yet, right? And, yeah. And, and they're kind of, they tend to be grouped up and sort of not expecting uh, hunters and their dogs to be in the field. Yeah, I would call maybe we'd call that bird. Uh, you, you'll you'll hear some of the names. We have some pretty fun names for what we're going to call these birds, these six b- different birds. But uh, we might call those early ones the innocents. And <laughs> the we, uneducated one. The innocents. I, the I was going to say one room schoolhouse. <laughs> But, but I like yours better. But they feel they they feel mighty good in their game bag, and when mm. you've got a little pup like I have, she's only seven months old now. Uh, they're sort of like candy for them. And uh, Anthony and I were out the first weekend, and we found a few innocents, and uh, they were pretty easy for his cockers. Um, even my little pup figured a few of them out. Um, we go out we next time you go out mid season to late season the innocents are gone the innocents go pretty fast uh, the one thing you might find innocents is if you've got legs and your dog has legs and you can get back in where nobody else goes you might still find a few innocents um, but mostly you're going to find these others 
Yeah. Well, and we're going to dive in here with uh, with these six. But as as we um, talk about them, what I'm curious about is I as I read this article, I thought there are particular types of dogs that may shine brighter than others based on some of these ruses. So I'd be curious as as we go through them if you think that there's a particular um, style of bird dog that. Um, that, that's a good idea. We should make that a part. And that, that's something I didn't talk about in the article. But that'd be a good addition to each one of these birds is is maybe the last tag when we talk is, okay, w- what dog does well? Yeah. And, and, I, and it, I don't think it might not necessarily always be a flusher versus a pointer, but it might be the personality. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as I read this is like, well, my dog always gets eaten alive by that type of bird. And it might not, like you say, matter a lick that they're a pointer. Exactly. And I've got to be honest, some of these, we'll get in. One of the birds we're going to talk about is going to be the wind runner. And we're going to take them in order. But to talk about dogs and their personalities, I didn't figure out what a wind runner was was until my old dog, Rascal, uh, first taught me what it was. And uh, she, she was the one that taught me what a wind runner, runner was by running downwind and coming back at me. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe it when it happened. But, you, it, but that was when she was three years old. So I had 10 years of her outsmarting those wind runners. So I feel like we should just start with wind runners. I, I know. I, <laughs> I feel like we're there already. Okay. So we're, we're going to go to number two first. Okay. And, and, uh, and that is... Dun, 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 dun. I don't know that I'm going to do that. Before. <laughs> uh, the wind runner and um, definition: run downwind to es- uh, runs downwind to escape. All right, go ahead and uh, describe the wind runner a little bit more. You already started. Well, when you think about a rooster pheasant, as uh, you know, to me, you think about upland game. You think about rabbits. What were rabbits made to do? Rabbits were made to feed things. They are prey. Roosters, pheasants are prey too. They're, they're, they're more evasive than rabbits. They can run more. They can hide better. Uh, they can fly. But how does, a, how does prey get eaten? It gets smelled. It gets hunted. How do you escape a coyote, a fox, anything that's coming after you as a predator? If, if you give them the wind, they're going to get you. I've and, and I, I alluded to it before, when I first saw my dog do it, it must be some, some throwback to when they were wolves. But my dog went outside of the cover, ran 200 yards downwind, cut in, and came back at me. Mm-hmm. She knew that pheasant was going downwind. And we all like to work with our dogs into the wind, but how often do they lose that scent? And we're like, where the heck did it go? And, and we're trying to get them back into that wind. Well, roosters don't always go into the wind. They know that's a bad place to go, and they'll run with the wind. So don't be afraid to follow that dog, and maybe that dog isn't going to um, run downwind and come back at you, but let that dog go downwind if it wants. I mean, they can smell. We, we can't imagine how good their noses are. Mm-hmm. How, how do we know they can't smell? something in the grass or in the in the forbs in the brush in the willows when they're going with the wind 
So, so don't, don't so don't be afraid to hit. If your dogs work in a pheasant, you, we all know when our dogs. Rachel knows, Anthony knows, you know, I know. We know what our dogs look like when they're working a bird, and when they start losing it, if they want to go downwind, let them go, go with them. So the um, the response that you have in the article on how to tackle um, the wind running birds is probably the most intuitive, but it's. I also think it's the hardest to do because momentum of the human condition pushes us to just keep going. Yeah. So go ahead and and explain what you would suggest to tackle the wind runner. I would say if your dog is done working that bird and you're just like, you know when it's over. I mean, Rachel, you know when it's over, when it's like, ah, that, there's nothing hot, there's nothing left. Then it's time to try some. Why not go downwind? Take that dog. If, if they'll heal, take them with you. If you got to put them on a lead, take them. Walk a couple hundred yards downwind and come back through. Come back through. You're going with the wind. Then get back in the cover and come into the wind. And maybe they can scent that dog. I mean, what do you, you think? Scent that bird. Yeah. Or, yeah, scent that bird. Sorry. I mean, like, what do you think, Ant? I mean, I can see your, your cockers coming back in the wind, reworking an area. I mean... I'm, ne I'm never afraid to just turn around and and have the wind at my back. Yep. I, I think a lot of flusher and retriever guys, I, I always try to work into the wind first. But, uh, you know, I have to usually go back to my vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm either doing like an edge down and an edge back or a big loop or a big circle. And so at some point, the wind is going to be at your back. And I, I'm at the point where I don't really look at that as a deterrent. Uh, my dogs are old enough now that I'm fine trusting them when the wind is at our back. You talked about like pointers, you know, letting them kind of just run downwind and work back to you. Flushers will do that too. It might not be as, the, the increments might not be as big, but just as like an example, when I'm working into the wind, I typically like my dogs at 10 to 20 yards in front of me quartering. Uh, but once we go down with the wind at our back down when they're working downwind I'll occasionally you know depending on the cover I don't mind if they start pushing out towards 25 maybe even a few loops at 30 as they're trying to get that scent and then they work back towards me and so what happens is they you know they might not always just flush one but they'll pin them between us and, and then we've kind of got two flushers working, me and them working. And that's happened actually quite a few times this year already where uh, I'm, it, it takes, right, you want your dogs close to you. It takes just hunting experience in the field to trust them that they're not just running away from you and to not always blow the whistle or, or beep them or buzz them back and to just let them do their thing. But when you get to that point, you can just read them and you know what they're doing. And so that's... Uh, I, I don't look at just hunting the wind at my back as that that's going to immediately mean my success is going down. I don't anymore. I do think it's more effective when I'm by myself, right? Because when you got like a couple people, you're just, you're noisier. And if you've ever examined a pheasant's ears, <laughs> you know, they, they yep. can hear you. Yep. And we'll talk about and we'll that. We'll talk about that. And yep. so it, like when you are working downwind, I mean, stealth is always always something that you need to be cognizant of and I, I do try to be extra quiet when the wind is at my back you know I 
and that even goes down to like the clothing you you're wearing. I mean, I, I wear those sound gear, um, he, like the hearing uh, devices, and they also amplify. And when you, when you you hear how much noise other people are making, sometimes it picks up the kind of that ambient sound, and it's like, wow, you guys are really noisy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, any birds that were here are probably out of here. And yeah. and so I think stealth is an issue. And then the other thing is just your your speed. I that that's yes. something that that's probably yeah. we're going to talk uniformly across these, but. Uh, when the wind is at your back and the dog starts pushing, you, you can have a tendency to want to just push, push. But it's how do you cook pheasants? If if you put them in a crock pot, it's like low and slow. That's how you should hunt them, <laughs> right? Yep. Like slow and slower, I guess. That's yep. what to remember. And so it works into the wind. Go slow. Let the dog cover ground. But don't don't just latch on to that. Oh, the dog's moving up. We got to run. Like I, I want them to turn back and cover that ground. And I don't want, you know, just cause the winds at our back to just turn it into a track meet. Yep. And, and so that's a, that's another key point I'd bring up that it can be real easy to just start pushing cause that dog is moving ahead of you a little further and you're trying to keep up. And I try to keep it tight where they're just circling back towards me and that no ground gets missed. Yep. You know, what I was referring to also with the, it's hard to uh, break that human condition, right? It's our momentum pushes us to just keep going, right? Where, and I think Anthony made a great point. It's a heck of a lot easier to do this when you're alone. So if if I'm walking down an edge or looking at a piece of cover and I'm by myself, I can always loop around it and come into the wind with my dogs because I'm not you know, constrained to hunting a line yeah, or loop outside the field and then come back in through the good stuff into the wind. You know, that's way easier to do if there's not the momentum of a group. And that can be incredibly. I think what happens in a, in a group quite, quite often is that we, I know we just came off our rooster road trip event and I did this multiple times and it's, and I had to, I had to exhibit it like an incredible amount of restraint, but you know, occasionally if you're on the edge, you can, you can kind of peel out in a way mm-hmm. that's not always an option. And it's like, I was just pulling my dogs off birds. Mm-hmm. I know they were on birds. Yep. They were working birds that were like carp has laid out. They were working wind runners that were moving with the wind at their back. And just to kind of maintain that group order, I'm just pulling my dogs off them. And I, and I don't like doing that, but sometimes to maintain friendships, you have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people don't realize too when you're in a line, the dogs have to quarter for everybody, mm. yes. and then one dog starts to get ahead, and people, oh, got to keep up with mm-hmm. my dog, and then is actually rushing the dog, so they don't have time yep. to go all the way down the line. Yeah, and so that's something I get frustrated too. Like I don't want to call my dog off birds, but again, it, yeah. it is even more complicated from from a pointer's perspective because they're trained to hunt so much further out. Right. And others that don't hunt with pointers or see those, <laughs> that those dogs working, you know, 100 yards out, you know, which is relatively modest. You know, and, you know, folks that have never hunted with pointers, they look at that dog, you're like, your dog's out of control. Yeah, I get like, that a couple times. Call your dog in. Call your dog in. Like, no, he's good. He's good out yeah, there. It's okay. Like, if if he does what he's supposed to, he's going to lie. Right? <laughs> Assuming he's not going to bust him. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, anything else on the Windrunner we haven't touched? No, we've explored some topics in that that we're going to touch on with some of the other with other, some of the other birds we're going to talk about too. But um, I think that's that's a pretty good bottom line for the Windrunner is pheasants don't just behave the way you want them to. You've got to do different things, and and as like Anthony said, if if you're especially if you're out alone, um, you're going to be spending some time hunting with the wind. And whether you're hunting with the wind on your way back to the vehicle or your way out from the vehicle or um, the wind has shifted on you, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the situation, those birds are going to run with the wind at mm. some point. And don't be afraid to go, go after them or loop around and come back at them. So, so I'm, I'm kind of glad we, um, we started with number two first because I really dislike number one. You, you number just, one ticks me off, Carp. The bird? Yeah, the bird. So number one on your list is this skedaddler ruse. And what ticks me off about this one is you never even have a chance. Yep. Because as you've defined it, the skedaddler makes an exit by running and then flying before the hunt even begins. This is this is the bird that flushes as you pull into the parking spot. Yep. And uh, Anthony and I are... Uh, Anthony and I are sticklers for this, and and you know once again it comes back to, you know, I think all of us sitting at this table doing this podcast, if if you told us you have one day left in your life to pheasant hunt, how are you going to do it? We're all going to go alone with our dogs, mm. and when you're alone with just you and your dog, you can get out and get out and get after that bird quietly. I liken it to deer hunting now i'm a deer hunter too i think we we've all in this room hunted deer at some point or another some more than others um i'm a deer hunter too when i get out and i'm hunting pheasants i treat it like i'm bow hunting and i'm 100 yards from my stand uh no matter what time of day it is you know i'm not slamming doors i'm talking in whispers to my dog uh if i got a partner there i'm telling them be quiet don't don't talk don't yell don't holler i mean think about the usual way we conduct a pheasant hunt and and go back to what anthony said or you said about i think one of you said about look at a pheasant's ears yeah it was anthony look at the size of that opening Mm -hmm. that pheasant can hear anything we've all we've all heard the stories maybe having of in in world war one when they were doing cannonades um in on the front lines, pheasants 300 miles away were reacting to the impacts. No, I haven't heard that story. <laughs> you haven't? No. Yeah. Was I supposed to? Did I no, miss that I mean, history? I don't Sharpen know. up on World War One. I. I forgot all my other history lessons, but I remembered that one. Um, what, but which World War was that? That was World War One. Yeah, in in France, in Breton. Hmm. So they. Can, well, that's why you know it. Yeah, yeah no. They, but they can hear anything. If you're slamming a door, if you're talking, if you're yelling, if you're whist- you're yelling at your dog, I mean, slamming a tailgate, think stealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. And you never know. The, the innocence might sit on opening day, but none of these birds are going to, the wind runner, none of these other birds we talk about, are going to be sitting there if you're making a commotion making a ruckus making noise um if, if you're treating it like a walk through the park it's not you're hunting you're getting ready to hunt a bird that's 
in my estimation, as elusive as a whitetail. You wouldn't hunt a whitetail that way. Why would you hunt pheasants that way? Well, and you bring up being um, being quiet. That That's almost number two in my mind. Number one is, um, you know, don't even park at the normal spots, yeah. right? Yeah. How many, you think about um, by, oh, by day three of the season at a WMA or, or waterfall production area, there's probably been by day three, maybe six, seven groups that have walked that same spot. And most of the time, they're walking clockwise or counterclockwise around the yeah. edge, right? They, they, everybody generally walks the same pathway. Yep. And those birds, like you say, they can hear. They can you can you look at their feet too, right? They they have that sensitivity on the. I mean, they can hear you coming, they, both audibly and vibration. And um, you know, if if you park somewhere different. It's completely legal, right? Park yep. somewhere in a ditch somewhere <clears throat> and enter that piece of property from a different direction and, you know, go through the middle, right? <laughs> like, just just mix it up a little bit. And that also tends to uh, tip the odds in your favor a little. You're actually touching on a, my, one of my next stories. I'll do at some point next year, but I'm going to call it public secrets. And that's one of them, mm. you know is don't do what everybody else does. Yeah, it's, but it's as simple as You that. want to know what a really bad feeling is when your stomach just sinks? And, and I guess early in the season, it's harder uh, to identify unless it's like muddy and you see a boot print. But like late season, I'll do that. And I'll think like, oh, no, no one's, no one's charted this path. I'm Lewis and Clark. Here I go. <laughs> and you get somewhere and then you see boot prints. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, they had the same exact idea I did. <laughs> Maybe I'm not as like, ingenious as I thought. Well, and then there's always the ones that, uh, it, it happened to me this past weekend with Lark and I, we went out on a two and a half mile, about a two and a half, an hour, two and a half hour walk. And we came back and within 50 yards of our vehicle, a rooster was doing his little, his little cackle crow mm. routine. So you never know there he was right back where we parked. Now that said, sure. we didn't park, we parked at a far corner with some habitat that really didn't look that good that would take you a half a mile to get into some good stuff. And I, I, so we followed exactly what you said before, Bob. We, we went at a different spot. We took a different path, a different track to get back in. Um, and that was all good. But still, all that said, we got back to the vehicle, and there was a pheasant within 50 <laughs> yards. So you can never quite. But I'll say this, if we hadn't, if we hadn't, been quiet and we were going in um i'm sure that pheasant was somewhere around i mean he spent the whole morning there while we we're elsewhere but we didn't scare him off because we were sneaking around well, like we were hunting deer the the natural i guess question here would be and, and i'll just put myself in a listener's shoes is that like well yeah easier said than done not not every wma is configured like that where you could park in it somewhere off highways some might just be odd shaped oblong uh you know shaped like jigsaw saw puzzles they don't have multiple parking areas there's not really ditches and so i guess to answer that i would say like just use your legs like park yeah. park in the main you know things get mm -hmm. muddy too you know you don't want to like have your i've been there i've I tried to pull off a road once and uh actually twice in one weekend where i got stuck you know trying to yeah. pull off uh off the road and i didn't want to park in like the main lot and then I, my vehicle slipped into the ditch 
and you're calling the tow truck. And so that you don't have to go to extremes. <laughs> you can just, or, or, you know, like in some places it's been dry this year, mm-hmm. right? Like further West. And so you want to be cognizant of like not starting like a fire. Yeah. You know, I know that was something we were talking about in South Dakota when I was just out there. And so park in the main lot, but then just walk and be mm-hmm. quiet and like walk to a different entry point, like walk a couple hundred yards, walk, you know, half a mile or a mile, just put your dog at your heel or lead and find a way around. I mean, you can still park in the same main area and, and then just not start your hunt there. Right. Yeah. So I got a question for all of you. We'll, we'll start with Rachel. So when you, when you do have the skedaddler, <laughs> right, that you pull up to a spot and it just flushes wild um, if you see that bird land, will you go after that bird or do you give up on that bird automatically as, you know, that's a lost cause? I usually wouldn't go directly at it and maybe try to go like a roundabout way. I kind of consider it an immediate loss, like in the short term, but in the long term, it's something you could get later. But I don't think it's the best approach to just like take a direct route towards it because you're just going to make them skedaddle further, in my opinion. But I'd go right at it. Would you really? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm with that, that. I go right at it. Which there's no right or wrong here. No, yeah, because I I fall. I definitely fall with Rachel. But, I would I would yep. let that bird rest, come in from a different angle, and hope that it's, it, you know, it's it's calmed down. But I I can I know people. Yeah. I'm yep. sitting next to two that would go beeline right from yeah, where it landed. We, Carp and I have talked about this too, and it 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 falls under. Um, I don't have many like strict hard and fast rules. Everything's always evolving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, well, but that, that's just one of them. That's got, just one of them that when I see a bird, it's like the bird in the hand principle. Mm-hmm. Like I just count that as the one, like, well, like r- r- trust your dog's nose. I have to trust my eyes too. Like mm-hmm. that's the, that's the one thing I offer into a hunt. <laughs> the, the, the talent that I bring, it's like, well, I know there's a bird there. Now I'm not saying I'm going to sprint over there. Sure. But, but you make uh, you make a point of being in that vicinity before it has time to run off. Yeah. Well, here's something too that I'll bring up. Maybe uh, I'll either sound like I'm crazy or that other people nod their head in agreement. Like, yeah, I get that. But like bird body language, like how they land. Hmm. You know, like are they hitting the ground running? Yeah, that's a good point. Are they are they are they, are they gliding in and? And I, and I try to, or are they helicoptering it when I feel like they're coming, they got all the feet points down. Yeah. Yeah. And and that might, that might, I mean, typically if I see them land, I'm going to go at them, but there's, there have been a few times where I look at just the way they hit the ground Mm. in the type of cover they were landing into where it's like, uh, that looks pretty thin. I'm going to hope he's going to filter in over there and I'll get him later. But yeah, nine, nine out of 10 times I'm, I'm, I'm making a beeline working my way slow and over and and going right at it. So it, it, so part B of that question, if it, say it's winter and it's frozen, but it lands in a cattail sloop, like you have no problem walking into that cattail sloop, but it's a cattail sloop. <laughs> do you do you go straight in for that cattail sloop, knowing that you're you know you're just gonna bust? cattails yeah but i like busting it depends on the time of year right yeah yeah we're uh we're, we're kind of doing a, a, a social science study here yeah, what, yeah. What makes, but you know Ra- rachel doesn't want to go right at the bird carp and i go at it you but like cattails i mean that the, the cattail bird that's just landed i carp will have to come up with a clever name for it uh th- but i don't 
maybe it's my size. Maybe it's just I've done it so long. I, I don't really have a problem going through cattails. I don't mind busting them all that. I mean, yeah, they get a little annoying after a mm-hmm. while, but uh, the the fun part about that time of year when birds are using cattails is that every other, if they're using that winter cover, you've really narrowed it down to where they're at. Sure. You know, all by and large, most other possibilities have been removed from the equation. They're not using light cover. They're not going to be in tertiary and secondary cover. They need winter cover. And so they're going to be in cattails, uh, maybe shelter belts, and they're going out to feed and then going back to there. And so when, when, when all that like land has been erased from land, like land that I have to cover, I feel like my success rate's going to go up. I think that's why when, you know, if you took a poll of like hardcore upper Midwest late season hunters, there I use that word hardcore again, hashtag, hashtag hardcore. <laughs> That, that that's why they like late season. I mean, there's a couple reasons, but uh, number one is like right that the early season crowds, the more casual mm-hmm. ca- hashtag casual hunter is <laughs> is is done for the year, and then so you know they can pretty much hunt whatever they want. Mm-hmm. People that don't like the cold aren't doing that, but I think that's part of it too. Is that uh, there? It, it's it it becomes much more of an exact science to pinpoint where birds are going to be. Hmm. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, too. I always thought that snow muffles sound a little better. Mm-hmm. And I've always found in later season, they tend to hold tighter. You don't get as wily busts later in the I season. I think it depends on the type of snow because certain snow is louder, right? Oh, the, but, the crunchy, crunchy crispy but, Yeah, snow. but you're right. Like the first fluffy snow, mm-hmm. you can be super stealth. And then, like Anthony's saying, you have you know where the birds are, too, because, hey, now you see their little mm-hmm. tracks running around right. the snow. Right. All right. Uh I well, thi- we sort of that sort of leads us into the third one. It, it does. It, it is the uh, in many ways the late season winter bird uh, number three, the hunkerer ruse. Uh, hunk. This bird hunkers in for the long haul. Tell us about the hunkerer. Well, this could be a couple. You know, Anthony sort of alluded to this with the cattail bird, and that's what I would call him, the hunkerer. They go in cattails. Uh, if he was a skedaddler and becomes a hunkerer, you know, <laughs> especially in late season. But any time of year, if, if they often hit those cattails, they're gonna burrow in. But there's also another hunkerer, and that's the one that just stops and won't move. And you know he's around. And I've hunted with Anthony and his cockers, and they are pros at getting that bird to fly. And you can't believe there's, and, and we've all got stories of places that pheasants have hunkered in, and we just can't believe mm-hmm. that they're there, and they are. Our dogs find them. And so so that's the hunkerer. And, and my response is, and we could add any number of verbs here, but circle, kick, wander, lurk, persist. Don't give up. And um, the best example, the best example I ever had of this was in South Dakota a few years ago. Uh, many years ago, this is when my, my old Brittany Rascal was probably in her prime. And we were hunting a, uh, a fence line, an old-fashioned hedgerow. And it ended, and the, she and, a, and our, my friends Vishla had been working and working and working. The birds were nowhere to be found. Hmm. And we got to the end, and the, the grass had been mowed in the ditch probably July. It was probably eight inches high. And we sat down to take a rest, to have a drink of water. And we got up, and I thought, where is Rascal? 
and she was 50 yards down on point. Mm-hmm. We walked up there, and I had to walk for a minute to get that bird to fly out of eight inches of grass. And that was a hunkerer. That bird was not going to move till I literally kicked it in the behind. <laughs> and if you if they if they'll sit that tight in eight inches of grass, think of how tight they're going to sit in cattails. I, f- I feel like that's a bunker. <laughs> that is a bunker <laughs> like, bird. Another World War One <laughs> yeah. reference. Yeah, it's <laughs> hunkerer in the bunker. Like yeah. if it if it hunkers longer than a minute, it's a bunker. But yeah. not not to not to derail your story. I, I've even seen them hunker in on in the furrows of a plowed field i mean uh-huh so so as you described this one you've talked about um you know anthony's cockers excel at this one you know your 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 britney rascal went on point with this one for me like it goes right to the dog if you got a good dog this is the easiest ruse to unravel yep right it's my favorite bird yep. you know as a pointer person like a rooster that doesn't run, that hunkers or bunkers, give that to me 10 times out of 10. Uh, I just love these birds. And I will say this often, that that this bird often becomes a hunker because of our dogs. Our dogs make it hunker. They are either fast or are, they're pers- our dogs are either fast, persistent, smart, they herd. They know how to do that, especially a flusher, but also to some extent pointers. And they can turn this bird into a hunkerer. And that, that's when you got the, your lab or your little cockers or your golden, and they're just going back and forth and around and around and around you. And you know, and I've seen Anthony do it with Sprig and Smidge dozens, if not a hundred times. You just stand there and wait. You let them do their job. They know that bird is there, and they just have to cover every little nook cranny and hiding spot and get that bird out and it, it's everybody's favorite bird mm-hmm. it's so, and they're right under your feet and you you come unglued and I can, you can't get the safety off and it's, oh it's going to get away <laughs> and and uh you know it's what we live for i mean a hunkerer is is really one of the most exciting pheasants mm-hmm. there is well once you get over hunker fever or rooster fever because <laughs> everybody does love that flush once you you've you've had a pointer and you kick around and you kick around and you're about ready to leave and you're like no you can kick the around do- the dog up. just stays or, there <laughs> or the flushers just circle and circle and you're about ready to pull them off but that you know this is where the phrase trust the dog was born but once they do get up and i i know i can compare it to anthony as a teenager and anthony in my you know maybe early 20s once you get over that element of surprise it becomes my favorite shot mm-hmm. right because this point once you've trust and trusted the dogs to do their job and you trust in them and then you you build that confidence yourself like once that bird gets up those are those are my favorite shots they're uh killable birds at like 15 yards and i'm never going to say gimmies i just won't do that with roosters because they're so tough and then when they get down that's another kind of bird yeah. <laughs> that we don't really want to talk about on this on this one but they're tough right but that's that's the most makeable shot the most exposed vitals and uh, you know long shots br- you know bring all the stories right like i can't believe i made that shot that i'll take an easy shot any day of the week and and that's why i like these birds the best because when they explode they're right in range and what do you think rachel i mean you're you're a you're an excellent wing shot in my opinion and these are to me they're sort of the reactionary birds they're the um they're the ones you, that you 
I, I left my shotgun uh, uh, in my kitchen all summer, and every time I'd walk past it, I'd pick it up and shoulder it, <laughs> and and I'd I'd swing it just like just like Rachel does on the trap range, and 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 I'm I'm hitting more pheasants because I'm shooting like Rachel does. And so just a question: Would you pick up that shotgun in the kitchen? Do your dogs go crazy? <laughs> yeah, they would. My dogs would start looking for the bird. They'd be bouncing but, around. But yeah, the point like is just another one. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's that reaction, that, that swing. And, and sometimes it's as simple as, oh, I just shot a pheasant, you know, because it, just, it just happens because you've done it so much. You're fluid. Uh, you're after it. Well, isn't um, that the idea? You're like, oh, did I even bring my gun up? I yeah. guess so, because the bird's down. Yeah. Kind of. But I was, sometimes those shots can be really hard because... I mean, they're turned away. Their vitals are facing the other direction, and they're kind of going at—they're going up at a different rate than you're used to. So I think a bird like that, a lot of people shoot over them. You know, you c- might call them gimmies, but and, well, and then after you change your shorts too, I, I didn't call them that. <laughs> Anthony knows this. I always—I I always give him a warning shot, and then then the second one, I'm a little better. <laughs> give him that two shot routine. <laughs> no, but one thing I wanted to touch on with these guys is weather too. Like I think mm. rain's gonna make them yeah. more likely to hunker, and especially the time of day. So if it's about that roost time, like that golden hour, where they're coming into bed especially with younger roosters in the early season, I think they kind of come into the field. They're a little lazy. They're a little cozy and they're not ready to fly. Mm -hmm. So kind of keep in mind that maybe at the end of the day, you're going to have more likely for these guys to buckle down. That's a great point. And the rain is a spectacular um, uh, variable, but also uh, snow, right? The first snow, they tend to to be hunkers more too. (laughs) Yep. So that's the Rachel P is saying, slow down and just let your dog work. The yep. bird will come the, out, but slow down. The the rain is a spectacular piece for pheasants because I don't want to hunt. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're 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 coming off a run of 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 a pretty. Well, it's been basically at this point nearing a week of just rain here in in Minnesota, and uh, I have pheasant hunted a little bit, but uh, I think once upon a time, Bob, you said you said after a rainy hunt like now that this just isn't fun for me and we did get a few birds but that fun factor yeah just just isn't quite there so uh yeah. that, that that's kind of one where uh, they they can hunker down and i'm bar- at that when it's rain when it's snow i'm all in here we go but when i'm kind of at the point where it's like kind of rainy like i think i'm gonna hunker down myself <laughs> or bunker down and it's not gonna be it's a, not gonna be in the in the uplands a bowl of chili and a nap yeah that sounds pretty good <laughs> uh all right as a reminder to listeners we are um, breaking down the six ringneck ruses as written by tom carpenter in the winter edition of the pheasants forever journal if you're not currently a member of Pheasants Forever and you want to get uh, tremendous content like this, please join at pheasantsforever.org. You'll get our publication five times a year, of which uh, Tom Carpenter is the editor and, and offers uh, all sorts of fun um, stories just like this one. Uh, this one was a perfect one for us to turn into a podcast. So yep. uh, we'll dive into number four. The wingless ruse, that rooster that forgets he has wings. Yeah, and we all know this one. I mean, we, <laughs> he's, he's, he's embedded in all these birds in one way or another. I mean, a pheasant in the air is a pheasant in trouble. And they know that. And sometimes the innocents, the innocents are more likely to fly. Um, and you talk about natural selection and all that type of stuff. But they are, pheasants are 
have evolved to run and we all know they run we see them going but there's ways there's ways you can stop it um you know we've talked about you know looping around and coming back to them uh when you're on your own with your dog um but another way is if you've got wingless ones, uh, sometimes that is sometimes sometimes that is it's the like time. A fallen angel. Yeah, you, I, that is. I feel like this one got shafted on the name though. I like the skedaddler and the hunker, but the the wingless one. All right, we'll work on. Another <laughs> name. I, I think you're probably right. Like the Forrest Gump of roosters. Run, Forrest, run! Yeah, no, maybe Alberto not. Alberto Salazar. <laughs> but basically, he forgets he has wings. He's running. He's going. How how are you going to get him to fly? Um, and this is one. This is one time you might want a partner to get these birds to fly. Well, and this is also like you know your your friend and the renowned bird dog writer and trainer Ben O. Williams. This is why he hates pheasants. Yeah. Right, because right. yeah, particularly for pointers, that these birds just run and run and run and run, and they never, you know, your pointer will point and relocate and point and relocate, and that bird just keeps going. And sometimes that bird will take off sprinting, and your pointer is sprinting behind it, you know, and they're going a hundred yards, and you can't keep up, and you think, what am I following? Uh, right. uh, you know, a track, a greyhound here, and then the and then the bird finally takes off, but he's gone a quarter mile by the time he does. Right, or or from a flusher's perspective, just you know, off on a sprint, and then. You're off on a sprint, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not much fun either. So, the, so how the heck do you break the um, break the uh, the code and get these wingless ones? Well, one thing, like I said, is you know, if if you're at the point of the season um, that these birds are just you're just having trouble with them, why not give it a try with a, a partner or two and station them somewhere and push to them mm-hmm. or flank and they have flankers and move in a small little group and have a couple off and to the back because those birds will want to run and they'll run a runner they want they're not going to want to run the way you want them to and we'll talk some more about that but they're going to want to run a different direction and so so this is a time uh and and we're probably talking any time of season but especially when you get in later season when these birds just don't want to fly maybe it is time to get a partner and get out there after them you know maybe got a couple dogs out there get them a little confused get them to fly um you can have it can be challenging to go after them on your own when they're just running and it's just you and your dog um sometimes you got to team up with somebody Hmm. you guys ever hunt with yeah, I've certainly hunted the, you know, the twelve-person four-blocker, you know, variety of hunting. Do you do you ever have you ever hunted with like two, three people and a blocker at the end of a field? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I don't have access to much private land, but um, my my parents do have a farm, and there's a few filter strips, and one of them uh, every it, one of the filter strips a CRP has a food plot. And when we hunt that, which is typically around Thanksgiving, we'll do it with like a couple people and like two people will walk through it and one person will post at the mm-hmm. end. Uh, so that that's one instance I can think of. The other thing that, you know, when, when Carp talks about a flanker, I guess, you know, that means somebody just moving out and ahead a little bit. I, I mean, I would call these a more advanced tactics, right? Like if, you, if you're new to hunting, <laughs> you, know, you maybe don't do this right away. But if you're if you're hunting with a partner or a couple people that you really trust and know, and everybody knows what they're doing, or maybe you're on properties where you, you've 
you really know the properties well. I mean, you just want to ensure safety, right? But mm-hmm. but having a flanker, I think, is a great thing to kind of – if you're not getting the birds out, you're at least pinching them, and that's that's the other word that comes to mind uh, is, is, is a pinch where – I mean, you're not going to get every bird, but you're in, in a way like forcing them to this direction or uh, you're hurting them mm-hmm. in a sense. I mean, you, you're really not, but sure. you're not going to get it, but you're at least – one you're or two get, that you can get a shot at. You're giving yourself a chance to to make them nervous, to to mm-hmm. have some some somebody or something, i.e., a dog, in their path. Yeah. When they, and, and, that, then, and then you can get them to hunker, and then then you're in business. And that and that that pinch too is like when you you have two hunters starting out and basically working towards each other mm-hmm. can sometimes be effective too. But again, I'd um, that's one where you better really know your hunter right be clad in blaze orange um know where the dogs are at really discuss the plan ahead of time about like where shooting's gonna be i mean i i've done that to some excess with people where you just pinch towards each other or you know if you push the field to the end and then you don't cover it all you have blockers start working towards each other they can be really effective mm-hmm. but it's also like this, I mean, you have to be safety conscious all the time, but that's when it really needs to be heightened. Cause those, like I said, I, th- I think those are, those aren't things you just want to do willy nilly. You really have to have a carved out plan because you're walking towards each other with loaded firearms and going to have birds flushing. And so you've got to account for a lot of uh, things Very that are going to be ha- happening, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and make those decisions ahead of time. So you don't have to ma- make a mistake in a split second. Yeah. Good advice. All right, moving on to number five, the recluse ruse. This is my favorite, <laughs> just because of because of its name. In uh, definition, this rooster hides behind a protective barrier of ice, slush, and water. And it, this one was actually inspired by Anthony, um, so I'm going to let him talk a lot about this one. But the recluse is simple. I mean. Well, I'm going to let Anthony talk about it because he, he, he knows what the recluse is. He, he sort of inspired this idea. So you tell us what the recluse I did? is. I, I got to yeah. be honest with you. I didn't even know I was in here. Yeah, so I, I, missed, I missed the last I, review. I, I, was I, doing, saw, I was doing other things for my job. So this is, this is also one of my favorites. Cause in that, um, all three roosters from my own personal bird dogs have come off the same WMA. And it has the recluse opportunity in it. And what you mean by this, right, is like there's a, a barrier in, in this particular WMA. It's actually WPA in Western Minnesota that has a, a ditch around the interior of it. And the only way to get across it is either when that ditch water is frozen or there's one little place that I'm I'm able to make a hop, <laughs> right? <laughs> and... Uh, it, it, once you get there, it's Valhalla, right? No other birds have been, I'm sorry, no other hunters have pressured the birds in this little island. And all three of my bird, my pups, first roosters, have come off of this one piece of property because I can get back there and nobody else, yep. no, like, no, they can <laughs> see it, right? It's like, how do I get over there? It's like, I know how to get over there. So, so if you if you want to do your summer training, you're, I'm picturing Tom Carpenter in his kitchen, he's probably got something 
simmering on the stove and he's swinging his shotgun <laughs> and, and Bob, Bob's got Bob's got something simmering on the stove and he's doing the standing problem. yeah yeah <laughs> exactly working on that these are this is the off-season training regimen here yeah. so now so <laughs> the combine for pheasant hunters Rachel what are you doing summer summertime Nothing training to... I'm shoot, I'm swinging my shotgun in the kitchen and I'm Bob's standing doing, doing standing, standing long jump. <laughs> what do you you got you, before the end of podcast? You got to tell us. I know I can't think what of anything exciting. <laughs> I'm put. Well, I guess uh, since we're talking about the recluse, I'm I'm just I'm running in my rubber boots. That's what <laughs> I'm doing. Well, that's one thing you talk about, Anthony, and that is that you know if it's not fro, 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 freezing is a great equalizer. It gets us back mm-hmm. in there, man, and. Uh, as we record this, we're happening. We're we happen to be looking at some freezing weather coming, and that's a, going to be a great equalizer. And it's going to be great that a lot of hunters are done. I'd suggest no matter where you are in any season, man, when it gets toward late season and stuff starts freezing up, get back out there. But Anthony, you even talk about taking your hip boots, taking your waders, and getting back in there. Yes. You know, I'm thinking about the hunt that I just came off this past weekend, and and I did hunt recluse birds. <laughs> it was on a public area, wildlife wildlife management area here in Minnesota, and it's part of a, a pretty giant complex, which, you know, those are my favorite. Big areas of habitat I feel like are going to have birds, and then I can go find them. And at this piece, there's a really nice chunk of grass, and then there's a really big food plot. And that's what people hunt there. And then below that is this little ditch bottom of willows and a, a creek, and it's wet. And it's tangly. I know where you're talking yeah. about. I call it a quag. It's a quag. It is. And <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think the birds really want to be there. They've been forced there by the early pressure. Hmm. And every time I've seen hunters, they're working at this spot. I mean, this spot isn't like a secret. People mm-hmm. know about it. But they're working the CRP or, or you know, the, the grass, I guess, um, the grassland edge, the crop edge, the food plot. And I've never seen anybody in all the years I've been hunting it put on the muck boots and go down into uh, this this ditch bottom. And there's some cattails and there's some just tangly canary grass and there's a bunch of willows, f- willows and phragmites. Tulies. And Tulies. Uh, and, and, you know, I can zigzag across the ditch when the water's low, but this time the water was high. And so I went across it and then had to do an extra half hour loop back to the truck. But you know what? That's where the birds were. They've been pushed down in there. And, uh, I, I, I did a, a last hour walk, uh, on an evening and I got one shot and one bird. And I felt like that, that I was the first hunter that that bird had ever seen. I mean, we mm-hmm. flushed him three yards in front of me and, uh, so, I mean, is it, I'll put it this way. Is it like always the funnest hunting, you know, do I like occasionally having water go over my boots and, and getting wet and going through tangles? I mean, it, it gets frustrating at times, but sometimes you just have to go where the birds are. And I, I've seen people hunt this piece for years and they, after the first couple of weeks, I know that this is where the birds go. And so I'm going to go where the birds go. Hmm. Yeah. I, and I think that's the main, the main tip tip here is that the get back off the beaten path and that sounds trite but trite things are true for a reason is if if you're not finding birds where you're at they're somewhere difficult 
and you're going to go through maybe a little pain to get at them. And, and it could be as simple as wearing waders, wearing hip boots, uh, hauling your rubber boots in. It, and it, we often talk about water, but that's often a, what else is really going to stop another hunter and his dog but water? Well, I got another thought, though, another boundary that sometimes stops hunters that's not a, um, an element, but you guys encountered it on a rooster road trip in Montana, and Onyx Maps opened it up to you, where sometimes a piece of property can be landlocked, you know, and you have to figure out how to get into excess publicly accessible lands. And sometimes you open up Onyx, and you're like, Oh, I didn't know yeah. there was a gravel road yeah. over there. There's an there. easement over there. Well, let's let's face it. I this isn't like a shot at like state agencies. I mean, I know how much work they put in to making like public atlases. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, wherever whatever state I'm hunting in, I have those. I like those for a number of reasons. You can um you can write notes on them and uh it, they're handy just to keep in your front seat when you when you stop. Uh, every once in a while, my eyes need a screen break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fine, but some they're not all equal, and some have like you know better road maps drawn out. Like what road is this? What yep. road is that? Minimum maintenance road, kind of two tracks and stuff. But that's where you know when you look at like Onyx maps, it takes it to a new level because every road is really mapped mm-hmm. out. And then, and then the thing that it does have, it has that private ownership. And I know um, I use this in North Dakota on some land that's it, it, it's like a square section that it's like school land. And it's it's more sharptail country, but there's some pheasants in this area. And uh, there's no road there, so I just asked the landowner if I could walk their fence line to it. And I have to walk for a mile. I actually didn't go do it this year, mm-hmm. but, you know, next year I might do that and just you know, take me 20 minutes just to do that walk. But if you have that information, you know, I, some people might say no, but you don't know unless you ask. Right. And so if there is a, a piece of land that's public, publicly owned, and you just need to get private access to that public piece, I, I got to think more often than not, people are going to be kind and say, yeah, as long as you don't mess up this or that, or don't go by this or that, or just take this route in, they're probably going to let you in. So absolutely parallel story, Western Minnesota, pull up to a landowner, didn't ask to hunt that landowner's property because that wasn't my goal, but my goal was to cut um, through his cornfield to get to a public WPA mm-hmm. and get on the backside of it and save myself a half hour. And again, you know, you're coming at it from a different direction. The birds aren't suspecting you. They're not hearing you. And uh, you probably lose like 80% of the hunters that never get back to that area. So even just knocking on the door and saying, can I cut across your lawn, (laughs) you know, can be um, an opportunity to break the uh, recluse ruse. Yep. And you can find them that way sometimes, a little door knocking rubber boots there's a lot of ways to get at them but just know they're out there that's the big thing is they don't these these birds especially as the season goes on and on they end up in places we don't go and and if you want to get a bird sometimes you got to get get a little wet a little dirty or knock on a door and see if you can get back into some public land i feel like every pheasant i deal with is one of these but i feel like 
every pheasant is all of these, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, they, you know. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. A recluse can be all these other things too. Um, but some, sometimes a recluse can end up a little innocent because he's, he, he, he gets back in there <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's not pushed, mm-hmm. you know, and it, especially if he's got enough to eat and he doesn't have to go back and forth or maybe he decides that's where I'm going to stay. Um, you can find a bird that maybe hasn't been pushed around for a couple weeks if you get back in there. So, all right. So, Ed, before we get to uh, ringneck ruse number six, yep. I, I have a little Bob survey monkey, you know, d- that, that popped in my head during one of Anthony's uh, last stories here. He talked about hunting a piece of property, public WMA, with a food plot on it. And it occurred to me, like, after mid-season, if I see a, uh, a food plot on a public piece of ground, I pretty much just ignore it. I don't even spend any time hunting food plots on public ground um, after mid-season. Am I missing the boat? Do you think that there's birds there? Um, do you still have hope that it's a food plot? So there's, it's a magnet. It's going to be, uh, there's going to be birds or what do you think? Rachel? Well, I've got the, like the lazy man attitude where if I have to walk through it to get somewhere else, why not? Mm-hmm. I actually shot the first wild rooster over my dog in a little food pot. Like it was a public land. Yeah. Early November or so. So okay. it, was, it was mid season or so, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of with you. If it's out of the way and it's later season, I don't think they're there anymore, but if you have to go through it, you might as well. So you you obviously didn't hunt this particular food plot, or maybe you did. You just the week focused. before the week before I hunted. Well, what I <laughs> what I do on this on this piece I'm talking about is I I do hunt the food plot edge uh-huh. on the way down to the bottom. Uh, I push through the food plot before with other hunters and stuff. I did I did shoot a very nice rooster out of the food plot, but it's not all food plots are created equal. Rachel and I are, we're really drawing out our differences here. I do typically hunt food plots, <laughs> if I, but I like really big ones hmm. late, later in the year. You know, those are the ones that, that I like. Uh, and, but I, I also like, so, and that, that, when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of like big corn plots. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those I, I'll hunt later in the year, particularly like maybe an hour and a half before you know, sunset Mm -hmm. birds will probably be in there feeding. And then, so it's, it's a timing thing, but, um, more so I like hunting like, uh, sorghum, sorghum plots. I just think they have a little more cover. You know, the one that I hunted was like a mix of like old corn and dirty soybeans and some just weeds. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I don't really like hunting corn all that much. I mean, I'll do I, but if I see like the other ones, I can think of some other areas that that I like to hunt in like South Central Minnesota that um, typically have like sorghum plots. I really like to hunt those. Yeah, and just for clarification, like I understand that pheasants need food, you know, <laughs> 365 days. And, you know, the better the food plot, the better it's going to hold birds. But I, I just look at a food plot on a WMA and I think I, you know, and in, in my mind I'm thinking about corn. Yeah. And I'm like, you know... That piece of acreage with the food plot on a WMA is hit at least once a day for the entirety of the season. And you got to be a really stupid rooster to spend any time in there, right? Like after like six weeks of the season or whatever, it's like that those birds aren't going in there anymore. I I can think about two giant food plots in Minnesota. And and I I think 
when I'm thinking of like, I'm not thinking of like half acre, one acre mm. food plots. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm thinking you know, smaller. Those ones. those don't really trip my trigger. I mean, you can just breeze through those. But like, there's a couple uh, bigger, you know, ten to twenty acre mm. kind of wintering area type food plots that that I can think of here in Minnesota. And I'm sure those serve dual purposes. They're for deer and and other upland wildlife. And when I think about those, my strategy isn't always to shoot a bird out of it either. It's to kind of you know, maybe push what's in there and get them towards some cover where I know that they're going to be in that last hour. Yeah. So it's a good um, point. So, you know, that, that's part of it too, is like, uh, and and I think that, um, that, that's a strategy that probably can work in some adaptation on every one of these birds is that, you know, when you, when you're thinking about how to hunt a piece of property, um, some, sometimes it's, you know, when I go into a place, it's not always about shooting a bird right away. It's about getting to that back edge and then my hunt really starts, Mm. you know, and, and sometimes it can be like that with food plots. It's just a matter of pushing birds out or, you know, even with the wind runners, right. We talked about, that's what we started everything off. It's like, maybe I'm hunting a, you know, a piece with the wind at my back first. And if we get a wind runner, great. But if we push them into that next area where I feel like I'm going to have a better shot, you know, not every bird, I mean, they get to choose which way they fly, <laughs> but you know, if we see five birds and, and three of them go one way and they're gone for good and two go into the area where I was really hoping they would, then that still can be a success. And I feel like I, now I've just upped my odds of getting them when I really, um, you know, going to have the wind in my favor. Uh, they're in a maybe thicker piece of cover, things like that. So, Well, I have something to bounce off of that where I approached a food plot wrong earlier this year. So it was me and uh, two of my buddies, and we're walking the food plot. I'm the, on the left-hand side, and we're getting about three-quarters of the way there to the end of the field. And a pheasant came up in the slough adjacent to me. So I just, you know, shot that bird like, nice, bird down. But when I fired, about eight roosters <laughs> came mm. out of the food plot. That, you know, we all could have gotten shots out. So I feel like I kind of screwed everybody over on accident without thinking no, about you it. Didn't, no, you didn't. So, you know, maybe it's a like. bird in hand, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. think about what you're doing and where you are mm. and what's happening. You know, like, maybe take a strategy to it. Don't well, just go I think, rogue. I think that, would, were you on public land? I was on public See, land. See, on public land, I, I don't, okay. I think the distinction would be if you have, like, private land and you really have a good sense of, like, the bird population where birds go Mm -hmm. like you really have them patterned you know maybe you'd say like you know if one gets up here don't you know we're waiting till the end i mean or you've hunted it time and time again on public land particularly if you haven't hunted these pieces how would you know i mean i that i just go with the bird in hand rule you you gotta take that bird Mm -hmm. in the hand your your dog luke would have been very irritated (laughs) with you if you wanted to take in that one oh sorry sorry luke we, we want everybody We're else to shoot players. birds. We're yeah. team players. <laughs> well, I, I'll hunt food plots. I, we're sort of getting into that public secrets article mm. that I'll be doing next year. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, if it's a weekday and I know that that yeah. place hasn't been hit, yeah, I'll, I'll go through that food plot weekend. Probably not. But And, and that's another, another tip. I mean, I just came back uh, two weekends ago. Uh, we're talking a lot of western Minnesota, but this is right on the South Dakota border. I spent two weekdays out there, and I did not see one hunter on thousands of acres mm. in in the heart of pheasant season, in the heart of pheasant country, and there wasn't a pheasant hunter to be found. And I did not hesitate to go through food plots at that time and shoot shot birds out of them. So on a weekend, would I do that? Maybe not. Week, weekday? Yeah. 
I'll do it. And, and Anthony's point is a good one too. Sometimes, depending on the time of day, if it's still morning feed or if it's mid-afternoon mm -hmm. feed, get in there and roust them about so and get them, yeah. get them I, somewhere else where you where they'll hunker in. Just just to prevent any you know any any negative comments too is like I one time I won't do that is like like a really really nasty day. Mm. I mean I do sometimes hunt when I probably shouldn't be, you know, when any normal person that uh, you can think like maybe negative 10, 20 degrees, wind chill a negative 30 and you still but I don't like to But a little bit of rain. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. inside when well, it's chilly. To each their own, Rachel. That's what my grandma said. <laughs> to each their own. World takes all types. We'll, we'll we we'll match up on something here. But um you know, that's one I don't like to I don't really when on those really like blizzardy type mm -hmm. days, I guess I don't really, I I try to leave the birds alone. Um, that that's kind of the, the the one you know I'm I'm a hardcore hunter, avid hunter, <laughs> like we talked about at the beginning. That's where my soft spot comes in. Like I don't want to go in a food plot and blow them out on a blizzard day when yeah. they're hunkered down trying to eat next to winter cover. Mm. You know, there's yeah. probably a couple of those a year. Some years you get through them, but I you know yeah. feel like that's just maybe a point of uh, of clarification. All right, and we have come to big number six. The, the final ringneck ruse is the slipper ruse. And the, the roost, this rooster slips back the direction you and your bird dog have already come. Yeah, and this so this com this combines a couple of the other roosters as well. But I mean, we're all we're all familiar with this famous bird, and that's the one that you're walking along, and your dog was working, and all of a sudden the trail peters out a little bit, and you wonder what's going on. And out he goes! Out he goes behind. <laughs> that was you. pretty good. Thank you. I I could do it louder. I don't know what how the the uh volume is here but <laughs> he goes he goes out behind you and he 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 either let you he let you pass and that's a form of slipping or he ran back and um they just do it we we i mean i'd be into you talked about a survey monkey I, i'd be interested for a hunter like one of us in this room or anybody listening keep track or think back if you keep a list of the birds you shoot and, and see what percentage of birds you shoot are going out not ahead of you and maybe not even but this they're either beside you as far as the direction you're going mm -hmm. or behind you and i would i would I, i'm going to venture a guess off the top of my head and you guys would probably be thinking your guys are probably thinking i'm thinking of too. a number <laughs> i'm thinking of a number and the number i'm thinking is at least 50 percent don't go out the way I expected them to, they're either going off on the flanks or they're going out behind. And that, that might be a little high, but I don't think so, especially as the season goes on. That's the difference between you and me, Carp. I don't have any expectations <laughs> when it comes to pheasants. No, I'm kidding. But you, but it's I would, like, I would but, agree with you. But, I would agree with you. I, but, I would say half. But you're a, base, you're a baseball guy from way back. You, you love stats. I mean, I'd love to know this stat is what percentage of birds are, are – our slippers are going out well, behind me. I'm picturing that like, like that that field spray chart in baseball yeah. where it's like Ex know, that, 16 of its home runs went to left field, seven to center, and all right, and, so and so eight, there's eight to right field. We'll Look make at, you a tableau so, dashboard. Here. So here's a challenger for <laughs> listeners: do do this for the season. Send in, and we can do the artwork. But give us <laughs> give us your spray chart about what you experienced. You know, of these birds, because I, I want to know what percentage are going out behind, and and I think it's. I think it approaches 50%. And so that's... Uh, so do you think it, 
the type of the style of dog influences the direction of the flush. So when I'm yeah, I'm thinking about a Labrador or Anthony's English Cocker, like you know if it's going to go out a direction different than you expect, like my gut tells me, like when Anthony's English Cockers are on a bird, he has a pretty good idea what direction they're going to flush because those birds are being pushed in a certain way by the dogs. Whereas, you know, if Rachel's draught goes on point, it's stopping wherever it hits that scent cone. And her percentage, this is my reaction, gut reaction, her percentage of birds flushing in a direction different than her expectation is going to be higher than Anthony's. I agree 100%. And I've got to tell the story because it's my, <laughs> my new Epignol Breton Lark's first bird. Okay. Anthony was there to witness it this year. And this bird was a slipper. <laughs> we'd, we'd been hunting. For, it was a slipper. That's, that's this ruse. Mm-hmm. But we'd been hunting for two days. Anthony had a few birds. We took out to Golden Hour. He, we, we went out to a, a beautiful spot. And we're working along. It's sort of a great day. Um, and we're working. I can't. Well, we're working into the wind. We took we took the wind right away, and we got tight time frame too. We had t- like twenty two minutes. Yeah. And so we're and we're on a mission. I hadn't shot a rooster in two days, and, and this new pup. We're going along, and the cockers were working ahead. They got on a b- bird. My little little up in Yoberton, the little pointing dog lark was on the bird too. They were all working around, and all of a sudden I thought that bell is not tinkling i keep a bell on her i'm pretty old-fashioned and i turned around anthony saw me turn around i walked 10 yards there she was on point about 20 yards farther behind us she had taken that that bird had slipped back and went behind and decided to hunker in he was a hunker and it was right under her nose Mm. and that bird was a slipper i we flushed it i shot it and it's a moment i'll never forget yeah, but that bird was a slipper. So Lark's first he was wild a hybrid rooster. slipper hunker. Yeah, he's a slipper hunker. <laughs> um, and thank maybe maybe bunker too because he was going to bed. <laughs> and, and true true to form, as Anthony knows, I fired a warning shot and then I got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet you're happy you hit it on the oh, second shot. I never when, he, when he, that bird he should be happy he hit it on the second shot because if he went to hit it on the second <laughs> shot, I was going to hit it on my first shot. Yeah, he, he was Anthony was swinging on it, so I, I knew I had to get it. But you know, but that that bird was a slipper. He went back the direction we mm. came, and um, that's what that's what they do. They they do what they that you least expect them to and that's why i said i want i want somebody to do a do a scatter chart tell us where the, mm. where your birds there, are going out well there's a great there's just a great area too though of like you i mean you were asking about like flush direction mm-hmm. i mean i just think it's different like with my spaniels like if i i'm hunting with carp or somebody else and we're kind of walking i think that changes that dynamic too like you've got another walker side by side with you is like you know 10 or 15 yards down is essentially another blocker Mm -hmm. right and so that changes can change how things go when where they flush i know when i'm hunting like by myself and i just follow and i typically hunt i mean i don't typically i always hunt one spaniel at a time it's just too much chaos for me (laughs) this is you know it's just it's like sensory overload but when i got one at a time and i just follow where the dog is going well, and they get on a bird that's moving and, and they're tracking. It's like anybody's guess where that bird is going to really? go. Yeah, yeah. They'll zig and zag and go back and forth. And, and then you really begin to see, like, 
I, I don't know like if you know if you like drew a map of like where roosters go to elude a dog <laughs> it's got to look like it's got to look like just like you know like a cat. Mm-hmm. You remember that game like cats in the cradle with like all the yarn and yeah. stuff <laughs> i feel like they're just it looks just, like one of those yeah, all tangled all up. tangled up just just Etch a sketch yeah basically like they're just they're just everywhere and and so that's why it's you know when, when carp poses a question of like how many are behind you it's like well, I think a lot of them would be behind, but sometimes you get turned around so many times. <laughs> and then they're ahead. <laughs> which, way, which way am I really yeah. going? I'm just, you know, I'm following right. the dog, and it's like we were ahead, behind, but, but we'll and do back that. again. I mean, Anthony and I will hunt together with flushers and my little pointing dog. Now, I keep her close. You know, I, I people would disagree, but I keep her in fl- – I try to keep her in flushing range most of the time just because she's a pheasant dog. But to, to sort of tie this back to – you know, as Anthony said before, and I think Rachel alluded to, all these birds are sort of all rolled into one. They're different mm-hmm. things at different times, um, but they'll they'll do all these different tricks. And even when you're out in the field, like Anthony and I are going along, I mean, we'll look at each other and we'll just use hand signals. Like um, we we had a bird the next morning after the, after that slipper I just talked about, and Lark was going on point. She'd go off, she'd run, she'd stop, she'd point, and I I motioned to Anthony, and I just you know I just used my, a circle. I'm doing a circle here, mm. and I and and he came up. And, and I think was a smidge was down, smidge was on the ground and smidge came up and she sort of took over and we had a, we had a flushing dog and a pointing dog working on this rooster. And, and then he became a hunkerer and he hunkered in. So he was all, these, of- he, he, he went, he was a slipper, he was a hunkerer and he was a wind runner and in sprig, ultimately it was sprig who flushed it. A lot of transformation. Yeah. But, um, but, I, it, I, but it was a thing of beauty. And then we worked in, we didn't talk, we didn't yell. A lot of people might go, Hey, we got a bird, there's a bird over here. Get your dog over here. And it was like, we didn't even talk, but we know, We've hunted enough together to know, but we just communicated with hands, with a few signals. We pointed. We know. We know in each other, being me or him. We know when we're excited. Our dogs on a bird. I will point out, like I do have uh, my spaniels. I hunt with a lot of people have pointing dogs, and I'm not like I like pointing dogs. I've (laughs) I've had my sister's English Setter for like half this fall. I like both. One thing I do, and I I'm a believer that you can hunt them together effectively. But one thing I, I do do is I have mine trained to like I'll whistle stop them, mm. or I'll I'll turn them around and then get them to come back to me. Like when a dog is on point, right. I just you know pointing dogs on or other pointing dogs. I'm not I'm not there to like I don't want them just running in and having having them flush unless we're on the same page, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like hey that's okay I want them to come in and flush. But by and large I just I try to put them at heel or just have them. Uh, sit or whistle stop them to sit so that the other person can go in on their point and I think that's I think that's a really it's not really hard to train them to do that any any dog lab spaniel to to sit and then I think it becomes easier to hunt with those different styles Mm -hmm. together yeah yeah I mean I think you're you're right um hunting them together as long as the person with the flusher has the control to stop them or pull them back um when the pups on when the other pups yeah. on point because you know it you know from a training perspective once that pointer gets overrun by another dog um it creates that competition that really good bird dogs have yep. and yeah. it makes it harder to 
tighten up that point, uh, mm-hmm. particularly with a younger pointer, and that's something that I feel like you're speaking challenge. from experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and it's not. It tends to not be as big a deal with pheasants because they are such relocators. And I have a young, I have a four-year-old short hair that is really good on pheasants because she relocates and moves and and um, she can kind of pin them. But you know, it has made it tougher for me to hunt her on rough grouse and other birds that don't relocate and you know she starts to creep a little bit and that's just a challenge yeah but i'm seeing a psychologist over yeah. that, so. <laughs> uh, night, night, nightly chats with ben yeah. Yeah. I, I got i got one one you, you know we we've talked about the ruses but carp talked about the bird uh, it, it doesn't fall in the ruse because the, the ruse is up when they do it but like I can think about one instance I had uh, earlier this year with one of these type of birds, and the, and the one that he mentioned where he had to go around um, at, at at this past weekend where he just kind of had to loop around near the parking lot and kind of pushed it back is the crower. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. And I like the I like I the, love the crower. I love the crower too. They're my favorite birds. You know when they just give themselves away and it's they let don't me last let me do long. it. Because <laughs> that's funny. It, yeah. I had this conversation like, rough grouse hunting recently with a guy. Um, the you know the uh, the related bird is the, the drummer, drummer. <laughs> and I'll be darned if I can ever get to a drummer, right? Because the drummer is you know if you have a drummer in the fall, it's a big old male rough grouse, yep. the smartest darn grouse in the woods, and you know. That's maybe been successful twice in my life getting to the drum, right? Yeah. And but the crower, on the other hand, is kind of the dumbest rooster in the bag. He's an innocent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, the the one the one I'm thinking of, you know, this is again why that you can't p- just neatly package these birds into one category. But I I I, I heard a crower and I snuck along with with uh, my younger spaniel smidge, and. This this bird had crowed, and, and so we just directionally set out for it. And I really didn't expect it to be there, but I just figured there'd be more birds in the area. And then we got closer and closer and closer, and it's still just squawking up a storm. And, of course, I'm thinking that same thing, like... Can't be true. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is this, true. it's too good to be true. You know, this is either, like, Darwinism on full display <laughs> or you know, who knows what. And, and uh, I got to this fence... I crossed the fence. And at this point, I'm like 15 yards away. I picked, he's still squawking. I picked my dog up over the fence, <laughs> and he gets up, and and I folded him, and, and the dog went and found him. And he, he was like an obvious two-year-old bird. Huh. So he was crowing, but he was, he was probably a recluse, just like no one had been by that spot for yep. whatever reason, and he was just in there. <laughs> recluse. <laughs> so... He was probably crowing with joy because he was so <laughs> such a you know. Look at me. He was lonely. That's I'm still alive. A ho- a ho- he was a hoarder, a recluse, and and now he's dinner. So <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> and lives you. And a crow, a crower. Crow. It all started with the crow, a crower. All right, as we uh, as we wrap up, um, ringneck roost, and I'll remind folks this is the article in the winter edition, the Pheasants Forever Journal. Go around the horn real quick with uh, just a tip for chasing up uh, all six of these ring necks that are going to try to play tricks on you. 
Uh, we'll go to the editor first. Uh, what's a, a late season tip that you'd like to offer up to folks to think about that maybe will help crack the code on some of these tricky roosters? Oh, you surprised me with that one. But I think, <laughs> I think late season, you know, my main tip is going to be get out there when it's a nice day. I mean, bad weather, yeah. But if you see a good day coming in the middle of the week, and it's going to be a little sunny and maybe a little warm. I mean, depending whether you're in North Dakota or South Dakota or Montana, who cares where it is, <laughs> Kansas. You know, we all have, we live in pheasant country. We live in crappy weather. And like Anthony says, you can go out and beat yourself to a pulp. But, God, why not take a nice day and say, you know, I've, I've got to get out. I'm going to go. And whether you have to drive two or three hours, who cares? You know, it's a short day. You get out there with your dog and be out there on a nice day because those birds are going to take advantage of it. And, and you're going to enjoy yourself too. I mean, you can beat yourself to a pulp and get a couple birds and, and then be, be hunkered in bed, uh, hunkered, be your own hunker in bed later at night. Go, yeah, I did. I, I was tough. I went out and did it. But God, if you see a nice sunny day, the birds are going to be out. They're going to be doing something. They're going to be moving a little bit and, and hunt that day. Don't give it up. Get out there. Take a day off work if you have to. You're a bird hunter. Be committed. Get your dog out there and do it and enjoy that day and maybe shoot a couple birds by 2 o'clock and be done and say, <laughs> I got them. I got my birds, you know. And well, and I'll throw, since I did surprise you with this question, um, I'll, I'll bring in one other element you've already told listeners, and that's to take that beautiful day off on a Wednesday. Yep. Right? In the middle exactly. of the that's week. What I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Everybody else is going to be out there on the weekend. But yeah, that that's a good point to make is that do it on a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, you know. Um, you're going to have, just like I alluded to before, if, if I had... If I had thousands of acres of public land of my own on the third week of the season, on a bluebird day, imagine how much, how few people are going to be out there on a late November or a December day or a January day if you're in Nebraska and Kansas and you still got season open. Look, look to that beautiful day and uh, that perfect day and, and take it, you know. Mm -hmm. Hunt the crappy weather, yeah, but man, when you see that nice day, and we might only get one of them in two weeks, <laughs> do, do it. That's, that's my tip. Rachel, yeah, mine won't be as exciting, I guess, but <laughs> or maybe cliche, but slow down. Yeah. I'm uh, really tired of. Um, well, if you're tired, you're going too fast, I guess they say. So really slow down, let your dog work, and follow your dog. Like you're saying, these some birds might go behind you. If your dog wants to, you know, work behind you a little bit, just keep an eye on them, see what's going on, and just take it slow. Yeah. No need if you're sprinting through the field, you might be missing some things and. You might not last as long, too. You might not make it all day. So we've got you're out on a weekday on a beautiful day. You're going slow. What does Anthony say? What does Anthony add to I, that? I would take, I'd, I'd take two days off. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. You can choose to do see how the weather weather pans. I would, I would look to that first uh, maybe two to four inch snow accumulation. Mm. I'd, I'd take, if it's a weekend, great, and yeah. you don't work. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't. I won't assume that every, you know, not everybody, uh, there's a lot of people that work weekends too. So, right. and that like to hunt. So uh, they're not always afforded that, but it, whatever. So, so the guy that I, that I bought Sprig and Smidge from the breeder, he's, he's worked, he lives in Southwest Minnesota and he's, 
he's got an understanding at this point. He's worked at the same place for like 20 or 25 years. He's got an understanding with his employer that when that first snow happens, he just won't be in at work that mm-hmm. day, you know? <laughs> and that reminds me, Bob, I'm going to need that day, <laughs> yeah. that day off. So yep. that that's it. You're going to have to put that in with somebody else. Cause I'll be <laughs> off that day so too. That, <laughs> but that, um, that is, uh, uh, I'd actually say that's better mm-hmm. than the first, than the opening day. I would, uh, the crops are all going to be out. Um, and, and typically what happens is it just puts the birds in a kind of a state of confusion, mm-hmm. even, even veteran birds. It's very enjoyable hunting. I mean, I'm not talking like a blizzard or anything. I'm just, we're talking like nice, light, fluffy Christmas card type snow. Uh, and it's, it's really an, and, and, you know, that you can travel maybe, if you're in a metro area like I am, you can make a day trip and travel a couple couple hours and be safe. That just an, a nice yeah. winter day with some accumulation, and that that's that's kind of my. F- it, I don't get to do it every year, which is why it's so top of mind for me this year. Is that you know for whatever reason it's been a couple years, and I know the last time I did it, uh, uh, it was it was it worked out like magic, like like. You know this this article about the first snow has been written for uh, you know mm-hmm. seventy five years, and that's the one part where maybe roosters haven't evolved. <laughs> <laughs> they they've turned into all these other things: the hunker, uh, the the bunker, the recluse. What did we else we have? The hoarder? No, I just <laughs> missed the hoarder. Yeah. Look at look at my crop; it's full of corn. <laughs> no, uh, but but that that's that's the 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 snowbird is like the crower, and the and the crower and the snowbirds are. That's when the odds have tipped in your favor. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be out there uh, either at the end of this month or maybe that first week in December uh, when the limit changes to three here in Minnesota. I wouldn't mind if it snowed that first week <laughs> in December. But that, that's, uh, that, that, that'd that be my recommendation wherever you live in pheasant country. Find a way to, to – uh, if you're self-employed, then you're in charge. But if you work for the man – Maybe tell the man that uh, <laughs> you'll that, be more productive because of it. Yeah, that, that yeah, that you. That I'll you, be so uh, happy when I return. I like I like that, that that we just have a mutual understanding that henceforth with my employment, the first snow day of the year will be will be time off for me so, to go pheasant hunting. End of story. So for me, it'd be a thirty-five degree sunny day. That's in mid-December. Mm-hmm. That's off. You know, I, I get it. So what what about you, Bob? What's your this late is your ideal day? Well, some good advice. You know, uh, midweek uh, day off on the first snow take it slow um i guess you know the the element i would add in there is um try it alone you know once in a while just you know bird hunting tends to be a more of a social event than other types of hunting but i just absolutely love um hunting alone and then it's easier to break the oh, we're going to walk this way, then that way, and having a game plan for everything. I, I kind of leave the back of the truck. Go with the flow. wherever my pup or pups decide to go, and hopefully if I'm hunting too, they go in the same direction. <laughs> <laughs> I've Who had, do you love more? Because uh, it, it, it is a challenge. Even as pointers, I've had them go in different directions, and then they both go on point, and then you got a real you know, Rubik's cube to figure out <laughs> I, which one will hold. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to hunt. Uh, I took this past Friday off and I was going to hunt alone. And I, I was going to hunt, I, I hunted public ground and I got home and my brother, my brother's a farmer. And, and so he was out and he farmed, my parents live there, but he was out cause you know, he 
has his equipment there and is fixing things up and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, it was, it was kind of rainy. So he wasn't going to be in the field. And he said, Hey, can I go pheasant hunting with you? And it was like, this was going to be, my, <laughs> this is going to be my first day of the year to go alone. But it's like, what am I going to say no to my own brother? Yeah. You know? So I'm like, okay, we can go. And then we went to this first spot and we, we, the birds were where I thought they were. And they just about 15 of them. It was public, public WMA. And they kind of boiled out of this thicket and went to private land. And then he goes, we shouldn't have walked it like that. And I'm like, you weren't supposed to be here. You know, like I want to walk it like that. If you weren't here, you know, you should get a dog, but we had a good time. But yeah, every, every once in a while you do need, you do need to, uh, be alone. uh just, yeah. I, well, I think the, 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 the distinction that I make is it's not loneliness. The, the better word is solitude. Mm-hmm. There's, and there's a difference between, you know, hunting alone. I think it's like, well, I, he just likes to be alone. And it's like, well, it's solitude. You're looking for just a little time away. So, uh, yeah. th- th- that, I, that's the word I, I put in. It, it, it just, it seems to fit better. Well, I just want to be away. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. If anyone has a young pup, too, that's really – I learned yeah. that a lot, too. It's a lot easier to learn your dog and control yeah. your dog when you're alone because if you're walking a big line, he might be quartering for everybody. It's hard to see what he's doing if he's four people down. That's so it's really, really important to get the solo yep. time out. That's a really good point um, that you learn about your dog. But you also – I don't know. I feel like you learn a lot about hunting oh i thought you were gonna say learn about yourself (laughs) well there is that uh and you know i am introspective from that perspective but i learned i learned a lot of i don't know you have you're more in the moment you're thinking about what's happening you can identify oh i got a little windrunner on my hands right now i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna navigate it this way so you know there's there's something to be said for you know uh on occasion just um leaving that truck by yourself now as part of the organization, I'll recommend, uh, you know, take a new hunter out, you know, <laughs> introduce, uh, introduce somebody to the outdoors. But, you know, there's some, some peace and solitude and uh, education and just plain enjoyment that can go with being alone in the field. Yeah, and effect, ineffective, too. And effective. I mean, yeah. quiet, follow your dog, be with your dog, learn about your dog, and... Um, you know, there's just fewer people making noise. Yep. And then when you take the new hunter out a week later, you can be that, that you should have been here Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have been here last week. It was really something. <laughs> well, folks, thanks for, uh, for listening. Uh, Carp, Rachel, Anthony, thanks for, uh, breaking down the six ringneck ruses. Uh, I'll point folks to the winter edition of the Pheasants Forever Journal to read more about uh, these tactics for chasing pheasants in an article that Tom Carpenter, our editor, wrote. And I also uh, invite you and encourage you to join Pheasants Forever. Uh, You can do that by going to your local chapter banquet. There's banquets happening around the country in the fall and in the springtime, or go to the website pheasantsforever.org. Your memberships are critical for uh, our ability to create places to hunt and improve habitat for for pheasants, for quail, for pollinators, for monarchs, and just all good things out there that um, um, need wildlife habitat. Uh, Again, thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I'm Bob St. Pierre, and we will see you down the road.